0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. After losing both his legs in Afghanistan in 2009, while with the British Army, Harry Parker spent years mulling over ideas for a novel, trying to find the best way to truly capture his experience of war. When he finally began writing, he produced a novel unlike any other. In Anatomy of a Soldier, Parker employs 45 different inanimate narrators to tell his story. Shoes and boots, a helmet, a purse, a trove of dollars, a drone, a bicycle, a bag of fertilizer, a medal... A beer glass, a snowflake, dog tags, and an improvised explosive device. These unexpected voices force us to see the war zone and its characters' lives with fresh eyes. Parker says, I wanted it to be disorienting. So each time you read a chapter, you don't know where you are in time and space. I wanted it to make it feel like being blown up. Harry Parker grew up in Wiltshire, was educated at University College London, joined the British Army when he was 23, served in Iraq in uh, 2007, Afghanistan in 2009, now lives with his wife in London. Their first child was born in October. He's also a painter, attends art school, completed a postgrad at the Royal Drawing School, and uh, sea kayaks in his spare time. And he joins us uh, from London. Harry Parker, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: Appreciate you uh, taking the time to uh, be with us. This is an extraordinary uh, work, getting uh, positive reviews. Um, I want to get into some of your biography uh, first of all, and then get into the the novel. Have you read some passages sure. as well? Uh, so you you come from a, a long line of uh, military tradition. Uh, your father is a general, and it extends back beyond that.
1: Yeah, I mean when I when I left the army, it was the first time for over a hundred years that there hadn't been someone in the military either the Marines or the Navy. So it was definitely, uh, definitely a sort of family family trait.
0: But I understand you, uh, growing up, uh, it wasn't your goal to join the Army.
1: No, well, I was at art school, and um, I suppose it's a bit of an odd, odd sort of combination, having been sort of doing that creative thing and then joining the Army. Um, and so when I left art school, I tried some other things, but there was always that sort of family connection in the background, and I needed a job and something, you know, a bit of, bit of money, so I joined the Army, yeah.
0: And uh, you've, you've said that it's problem-solving. You found yourself a passion for problem-solving, and, and of course in the Army, mm-hmm. that's uh, that comes into play.
1: Yeah, sure, and you suddenly realize that actually you can be creative in the Army, whether it's helping out one of your soldiers uh, do something or, or creating um, sort of uh, interesting training. And even when you're on tour, you know, the best way of defeating the enemy. It's its a place where I think being creative can be helpful.
0: You toyed with uh, advertising. Why did you reject that?
1: I think it was just, um, I don't want to say too much in case there's too many advertisers out there, but I, uh, it sort of felt in some of ways that it wasn't sincere um, enough for me, so that's why I rejected that, um, mm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. And your father, of course, was in the army, so you you uh, grew up in a lot of places, including Gibraltar. That seems somewhat exotic. How was how was it living in Gibraltar?
1: Well, I was I was sort of five and six. And I I seem I just remember standing on the beach and seeing the, the um, military aircraft taking on and taking off the um, off off the airfield there and, and drawing them. So it was a it was a pretty amazing place to be when you were young.
0: Mm. A, a keen eye, I'd, I imagine. Did that help, by the way, in your service in the army?
1: In terms of the the drawing and the, 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 the painting, yeah.
0: Just a, uh, I guess you you would hone your skills as an observer.
1: Yes, well, I think you know it's um, being being in the army. Often, it's that sort of ability to visualize things and things in three dimensions. Whether it's the population that you're trying to help or the hill that you're trying to get around, I think. You know often that that ability to think outside the sort of more in a sort of creative way is really helpful
0: you were in Iraq first uh, two thousand and seven i think Basra uh,
1: yes Basra yeah uh, t-
0: tell me a bit about that uh that that was a think a fairly small force in a very large city
1: yes we were we were six hundred men in a in a city of um sort of two million um so when we rumbled out of the gates in our armored vehicles, it did feel quite uh of claustrophobic and, and quite intimidating at times but it was an amazing experience um and as a soldier we learned very quickly out there uh
0: so 2009 you're in afghanistan you're a liaison officer i understand what 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 did that involve what was what was your job
1: well my job was really to try and understand the local population so that when we were going about our business we were trying to make the right decisions and you know, it was about reconstruction. But where I was in Hellman Province it, province, it was um the security situation was still quite poor. So it was very difficult to sort of open schools and help with agriculture and things like that. But that was my job really to try and make sure we was we were doing as little harm as possible while defeating the enemy.
0: You've said that uh, when you're deployed to these places you do a lot of reading to try to understand, understand the people, understand the enemy? What were you trying to understand?
1: The sort of, the the culture, I suppose, um, so I think sometimes people think we go to these places without any idea of what's going on, but certainly in the British Army, and I know in the American Army, there's a real emphasis on trying to get everyone who goes there to have as much understanding of the culture, the religion, the different tribal dynamics, because as soon as you step out and you patrol through markets, in an area where you might not know the language you need to uh, tread lightly if that makes sense Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, and how much i mean how how much can you come to understand how much did you feel you you understood the, the people
1: well you know that's the problem isn't it tom you you try and understand these things and you're reading these books that are about a whole country and then you land in this tiny little village in the middle of nowhere which has its own Tribal dynamics and its own people who are in charge, and it's very difficult um, to, to really understand that. And especially as a lot of us didn't know the language, I think that was the biggest barrier—not being able to talk freely with with um, with the locals. Um, so you try hard to understand, but always there's that um, that that difficulty. It's like I suppose going any to any village in America. We might I might think I know what Americans are like, but every village is different, and I think that's difficult.
0: I'd like to get into a bit of the book. Um, uh, have you uh, we'll set this up and have you read uh, chapter one if I, if I could as a brief uh, chapter opening chapter uh first of all the, the, your decision you i guess you cast about uh, after, after you uh, stepped on an uh, explosive device uh, mm. you know, were returned to to Britain, long recovery then you're trying to you're casting about trying to find a, a good way to tell your story and you you settle on this uh, extraordinary device of telling it through the uh, the eyes quote unquote of inanimate objects um and your girlfriend now wife says that's a bit gimmicky didn't she so what was your response
1: well my my response was to try and prove her wrong by writing the rest of the book i think um it, for me it was really important that I was telling. I mean, what the reason I started writing is because I wanted to write a good book, um, and I wanted to. You know, there's some great nonfiction works and memoirs out there, but I really wanted to sort of get away from too much of the politics. And there's something about the sort of the sentimental um, that I wanted to try and. I didn't want too much sentiment in what I was writing about it. I needed some distance, so that's why I chose the objects.
0: Let me have you uh, read this. It's just a, it's about a page and a half.
1: Sure. So this is, um, this is chapter one of Anatomy of a Soldier. My serial number is 654501. I was unpacked from a plastic case, pulled open, checked and reassembled. A black marker wrote BA5799 O positive on me, and I was placed in the left thigh pocket of BA5799's combat trousers. I stayed there. The pocket was rarely unfastened i spent eight weeks, two days, and four hours in the pocket. I wasn't needed yet. I slid against BA5799's thigh, back and forth, back and forth, mostly slowly, but sometimes quickly, bouncing around. And there was noise, bangs and cracks, high-pitched whines, shouts of excitement and anger. One day I was submerged in stagnant water for an hour. I went in vehicles, tracked and wheeled, winged and rotated. I was soaked in soapy water, then hung out to dry on a clothesline and did nothing for a day. At 0618, on 15th August, I was sliding alongside BA5799's thigh, and I was lifted into the sky and turned over. And suddenly I was in the light. There was dust and confusion and shouting. I was on the ground beside him. He was face down. He was incomplete. I was beside him as rocks and mud fell around us. I was in the dust as a dark red liquid zigzagged towards me over the cracked mud. I was there when no one came and he was alone and couldn't move. I was still there as fear and pathetic I was there as fear and pathetic hopelessness gripped BA5799 as he was turned over and two fingers reached into his mouth as his chest was pumped up and down and they forced air into his lungs. I was picked up by a slippery hand fumbled back to the ground then picked up again. I was pulled open by panicked fingers and covered in the thick liquid. I was placed on BA 5799. I was tightened. I closed around his leg and his pulse pushed up against me, and he grimaced and whimpered through gritted teeth. I was wound tighter, gripping his thigh, stopping him bleed out into the dust. I clung to him when he was lifted onto a stretcher and he bit deeply into into the arm of a man who carried him, when he no longer made any noise. I clung to him as we boarded the helicopter. I was wound again then and gripped him harder. I clung to him as we flew low across the fields and glinting irrigation ditches and the wind rushed around the helicopter, when he pleaded with God to save him and metal pads were placed on his chest and his body jolted. I clung to him when the machine read no output, when there was no pulse against me. And I was there as they ran across to the helicopter and took us into the cool of a hospital. I was there when the doctors looked worried. I clung to him when he came back, when he had output and his faltering heart pulsed again. I was still there when they hung the bag of blood above BA5799 and they cut the remains of his leg away. And then I was unwound and loosened and I was no longer there. BA5799 no longer needed me. My serial number is 654501 and I was at the bottom of the surgical bin and then I was burned. That's that's, a, the, that's the first chapter.
0: First chapter. That's gripping. And it's it's told from the point of, I For whatever reason, when I first read this chapter, I guessed dog tags. But I, I don't know why I thought that, because dog tags wouldn't be in the pocket. They'd be around the, the neck of the, the, the soldier. And then it becomes sure. clear for, that this is the tourniquet that uh, yes, the part, yeah. soldiers which, which carry. Which all soldiers carry. Uh, f- for obvious reasons here. Um uh, but it is disorienting, and I guess that's one of your purposes, right? And you also uh, play around with, with, with time you jump back and forth. Um, that's, I think that's one of your purposes, right, disorienting for the reader?
1: Yes, I think it was a way for me of sort of trying to mirror, firstly, what, what a bomb's like. I mean, it's fragmented, and when I first started writing, I toyed with the idea that the book could be read in any order and the reader would get to the same place. But really, it was about... Um, trying to mirror what it's like to be a soldier because you never really know where the enemy is or when you're going to be safe and equally when you're in hospital and you're on morphine and you're not quite sure where you are or if you're going to survive somehow using the objects allowed me to sort of give the reader a sense of that
0: and uh, memory comes in here too. i've read that you you thought you had a memory of the, the whole time or greater periods of the time than, than you actually had, but they told you afterward that they had to restart your heart five times, for example? You didn't know that?
1: Well, I suppose, yeah, I, I mean, I thought I remembered all of it. And then, of course, when you're unconscious, you don't know that. And I was obviously coming in and out of consciousness. Um, so there's bits of, I mean, for me, the book is fiction, and I also, I tell the story of the insurgents who plant the bomb um, but it's it's interesting when you when you write back about something that's happened to you and you turn it into fiction that that memory starts to play a very odd part in the story.
0: Also, you did re- I should yeah point out and re- reemphasize this is not a memoir; it is a novel. Um, yeah. There there are some parts that are more autobiographical than others. I, I assume that some of the experiences of Captain Barnes are are pretty close to your experiences.
1: Yes, I mean I suppose I mean especially the the bits around when he's wounded and when he's in hospital and his, his sort of feelings with his family are, some of them are very close to my experiences because they felt so powerful. But there's other parts of the book that I just wanted to tell a much more um, interesting story I suppose and that's why I tried to bring in the story of the insurgents as a sort of, I suppose a mirror for Tom Barnes's experience because I was interested in the people who planted the bomb which is one of the objects as soon as I started to write from the point of view of this IED. I had to create the characters who who planted the bomb.
0: And so you uh, you've created some very interesting characters. Uh, two boys growing up together, sharing a prized bicycle, flying kites, and then they become estranged. Uh, one of them uh, trains to, to to fight the "quote unquote" infidels. For example, that you get to get yes, into the minds um, of the inf- uh, insurgents.
1: Sorry. Yes, then, I, uh, it was. I suppose when I was writing the book, it was, I'd always, when I'd been out there and I'd been fighting, and I, I mean, war is very dehumanizing and it makes us, you know, not hate, but if one of your friends or your comrades is injured or killed, the next time you go on patrol, there's that feeling of anger. And then when you come to write about it, um, you could try and write these people who are, you could try and write them as just cut out bad guys, but it didn't really work for my story. So I was sort of trying to explore why these two young boys, what what choices they had in a conflict zone, which was torn apart by war, and the sort of family pressures to either join the insurgents or not join the insurgents. And so the the story follows partly these two boys who one of them decides to become an insurgent and the other one doesn't. And that was really interesting because I've always been interested in why people fight.
0: Uh, Why do you think people fight? on both sides.
1: Well, I mean, that's one of the things the book looks at, I think, it's for so many reasons. You know, my parents were in the, my father was in the army, and, and although I went to art school, it sort of came back around and I joined the army, but I didn't join the army because Iraq and Afghanistan were going on. I joined because a sense of sort of loyalty and good wage and thinking it was a worthwhile thing to do, and I think probably those sorts of pressures are also on people in, in the war zones. But then added to that, there's the fact that your society is falling apart and there's choices to be made when there's insurgents who are offering you money to go and plant a bomb or saying that they're going to do a better job than the government. And suddenly, even as a young boy, you're, you're, you've got choices to make. You know, Who do you, who do you go for in, for example, if Afghanistan, the new government, or the Taliban?
0: Uh, you mentioned before dehumanizing, and I think that's—I uh, think that is part of any, at least, ramping up for war effort, maybe maintaining the war effort. Uh, dehumanizing right. the enemy. The, uh, I wonder if you think that has lasting effects back home, you know, on the on the society that's going to war.
1: I well, I I, I think so, and I and I I suppose one of the one of the aims of writing Anatomy of a Soldier was for me to get my feelings about conflict out and trying to because there are some very black and white narratives of war you know especially young people playing computer games and some of the films out there and and they they build on the excitement of being a soldier and i think for me it was important although i wanted to show some of that excitement and adrenaline i also wanted to show but it's it's very complicated when you're out there and you're 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 in a in a conflict where with other people and and they are people um, and towards the end of my tour, you know, in Iraq, it, it was sometimes hard to make to remember that, that these are people, even if they're shooting at you, they have motives and motivations, that if I was in their position and I had grown up in their countries, you know, what decisions would I have made? And so I think that's, that was important to me.
0: You say near the end of the, the tour in Iraq, it was hard for you to, to maintain that, I guess because people are shooting at you, right, and that's hard to... It's hard to deal with and and still see them as, as uh, i guess humans and and having motivations of of their own honorable motivations
1: yes and i mean they're shooting you, but also they're they're injuring and and killing your friends you know and that's that's really difficult and and i and i that's what part of the book is about is is as a writer it was what was so amazing as a writer is as you write I was rehumanizing these people um because like you know as soon as you start to think hard about who they might be and, and what they're doing and and i suppose towards the end, and that, that that's what as a writer was so important to me
0: can can you be an effective soldier and fight effectively and and you know and and have your have the enemy humanized it would be going through that process at least in your your mind can you hold those two together
1: I think well I mean I think definitely Tom I think for me um a soldier who isn't anti-war is a is a bad soldier because um, war is a terrible thing uh, that doesn't mean that soldiers don't go out there and do a do a good job and can be aggressive and 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 meet and destroy the enemy when they need to but deep down a soldier has to be anti-war I think um mm. and and wish that they'd never go and I think anyone who's been on multiple tours of these places understands that more and more um so so i definitely believe that and i hope you know with strong leadership and training you can hold on to the fact that an enemy might be human but there's always that switch that flicks when you're in a firefight and it's all about aggression and keeping yourself and the mission alive but but it but it's it's just not as black and white i think as as often um of popular culture can show it
0: Mm Yeah, there is a disconnect sometimes in their popular culture I mean, of course, you know, striving to be popular. Um Yeah. Uh is, is Anatomy of a Soldier is it an anti-war book?
1: Well, well I, that's a really good question. When I wrote it, I I didn't think in those terms. I tried to show the sort of the joy, joy is the wrong word, but the sort of adrenaline of soldiering, the camaraderie of being out there, the sort of amazing adventure. I wanted to show that as much as the, the, how terrible war is, on the other hand. But um, you get to the end of the book, and, of course, I think any thoughtful portrayal of war is going to be anti-war. I mean, it has to be, um, because it's such a rubbish activity.
0: Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Harry Parker, uh, he is out with a very interesting uh, novel, debut novel, Anatomy of a Soldier. It's told from the point of view of 45 inanimate objects. Um, objects uh, such as a bicycle, a bag of fertilizer, a metal, an improvised explosive device. It tells the story of Captain Tom Barnes leading British troops in the war zone. He will soon lose his legs in an IED strike. Two boys growing up, sharing a prized bicycle, flying kites before finding missiles estranged when foreign soldiers appear in the countryside. The man who trains one of the boys to break from his family to fight the infidel invaders. And then back in Britain, Tom's friends, his brother's parents take care of him when he returns home. Uh, let's uh, hear more about this when we come back.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change.
0: This is Science by the Slice. Can Earthlings live on Mars? They can if they develop self-sufficiency, say USU scientists Lance Seafeld and Bruce Bugby. The Aggie researchers are among a NASA team developing the necessary technology to provide Mars pioneers with survival tools. The USU researchers' challenge includes using light to initiate nitrogen fixation and thus enable growth of plants, as well as raising those plants in a closed system using recycled water.
2: This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science.
0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Harry Parker. Uh, His uh, debut novel is uh, getting quite a bit of notice, Anatomy of a Soldier. It's uh, told from the point of view of 45 inanimate objects, uh, such as a trove of dollars, a purse, helmet, uh, shoes and boots, a snowflake. It tells the story of uh, Captain Tom Barnes, but uh, also two boys growing up. In the war zone, one of them will become an insurgent uh, back in Britain as well. Tom's old friends, his brother, his uh, parents, um, and uh, Harry Parker himself uh, served in the British Army, uh, did a tour of duty in 2007 in Iraq, 2009 in Afghanistan. That's where he uh, stepped on a bomb and lost to both legs. Um, And you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, toll-free. And you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail dot com. at uh, gmail dot com. Uh, throughout the book, uh, Captain Barnes, Tom Barnes, is referred to back and forth as Tom Barnes or as BA five seven nine nine, which I guess is his army number, serial number. Why did you go back and forth with that?
1: Well, the um, the idea with that, Tom, was to do with. Um with the fact that the objects have a serial num- number themselves. And I was slightly playing around with the idea that the, that the soldier is, a, is an object in the center of, um, sort of systems of warfare and equipment, and there's drones and there's radios and everything has a place. And, and so I was looking, I was quite interested in, in, in that side of things. But as the book goes on and he recovers, sort of he re- rehabilitates, the, um, he, he sort of humanized in a way, so he, he is referred to by his, his name more and more. So that was the idea in, in choosing to do mm-hmm.
0: that. There is a, You put a little bit of a distance by using this method, right? Of, through the inanimate object's uh, eyes, quote-unquote, there is a bit of a, a distance. Was that purposeful? You wanted some distance?
1: Well, yeah, you know, I suppose it... Um my 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 grandmother used to talk about her father um in the first and second world war, and she always said that she he never talked about um his experiences and as if it was in some way um sort of not unmanly it would sort of it wasn't you it was a sort of stiff British upper lip if that makes sense mm-hmm, yeah um so um so I suppose there was a part of me that didn't want to pour out my heart didn't want to be too emotional about it. And that was, using the objects was one way of keeping a distance and not being too sentimental. And as soon as I started doing it, it felt quite powerful as well. And and some of that emotion does come back in, I think. Um, uh, But it it gave me a a way of of talking about it, I suppose. Mm
0: Uh, and, you know, we understand that in, in this country, in, in the U.S., the World War II generation especially didn't, uh, many of those men did not talk about their experiences until much, much, much uh, later. So I guess there's there's mm-hmm. that factor. But also you're talking about a cultural factor, that, that stiff British upper lip. Yes,
1: yeah, so, I mean, we, on one hand, in, in, in the U.K., people didn't talk about it. But then we have this amazing war poetry and things and uh, amazing paintings from the First and Second World War, so I think you know some parts of society did express themselves, and um, some some parts didn 't um, and I think that 's similar to um, what 's happened after these current conflicts. but for me, the big difference is that in Britain, the Second and First world War happened to everyone you know they were they were a war that everyone in some way was touched by and was involved in, and in Britain with the the more recent conflict um, post 9-11, that's not quite the case. Not everyone feels touched by it. We, we haven't sent such a huge percentage of our population to, to the wars. And so I think there's a slight difference there um, about why people talk about it more in the press and things
0: i 'm interested in that we've talked about that in this program uh, several times. The fact that the modern wars are the, the burdens not borne by by the populace it's, it's borne by a few families your, your family's one of those it 's a you know military tradition in your in your family what What are your thoughts on on that that it's just well I, I mean families. I think
1: uh, one part of me feels that there is um, that there is a uh, there's a cult of the pers- the personality and the personal in a lot of news stories, a lot of news stories use the the um, the sort of individual to hook the reader in and they in some way need a personal angle and I think when that comes to war, it means that the individual is often put forward um, to describe their experiences, and that 's very powerful um, and so I think, in a sense sort of uh, the way our culture is means that we we sort of are interested in the what happens to the injured soldier or the, the veteran? In some ways, I mean, that's how it feels over here. I'm, I'm not so sure about America, but that's how it feels here.
0: Uh, what would you want then to, to, to talk about the soldiers collectively? What,
1: uh, what would be? The I, I'm not sure. There's i um, I'm not sure there's a right or wrong answer, Tom. I just think it's interesting the way culture's gone because. Um, because could, you could just have a very factual account of what's happened in, in, these, in these conflicts, and that might be a bit boring. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the personal story does give a bit of interest to it that then means more people are aware of it. But the other side of that is that you only get one, you're only getting one specific point of view sometimes, and I think that can also be dangerous. But I, I mean, I think it's just the way the world's gone. The only other thing I'd say about it is that we, our, our society in the UK, I suppose, is not angry, but it's a war that they understand the reasons why we went, but they feel that the government sent young men to these places, and therefore, and they've been injured, and therefore, the government is responsible for making sure they're looked after well. Mm-hmm. So there's a real need in the public to make sure no one no soldiers are failed or allowed to um fester or not be rehabilitated pro- properly
0: just one more thing on your particular family dynamic uh, your, your father was a general and i believe mm. when you were injured he was about to be posted to iraq uh, to afghanistan rather to i think to lead the the british army there
1: yes uh, that's right so i um i was due to to have a tour in 2009 that went from sort of january to november and then just so happened um because my father was in the army that he was due to deploy in november and um i was injured in july and so for that first period he was around during my re- rehabilitation and then he he deployed
0: And i think you told him hey you you got to go right
1: you have to yes yeah, i mean looking back it seems strange in a way but it it, it at the time you know i it just because I was in hospital, I didn't, it didn't change the way I, f- I felt about what I'd been doing and my training and, and the fact that, you know, being a soldier. And so it didn't change the way I felt about his job either. You know, he'd been in, he'd been in the Army, or he had been in the Army for about 40 years by the time he left. So, you know, it was, um, it was something that he just had to do as part of the job.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, this novel's not political. You didn't want it to be political. Um, I wonder, have you come to any political conclusions, just you know, apart from that uh, it, in the years? It,
1: it's not that I didn't want the book to be political. It makes lots of political points. I just didn't want to. I wasn't interested in whether Tony Blair had made the right decisions or. You know, there's lots of conversations in the UK about whether we had the right equipment or not. And I, my first point that I wanted to do with Anatomy of a Soldier was just tell as good a story as possible. But there's lots of sort of. Politics about, you know, how these young Afghans, what happens, sorry, they're not Afghans, but these young insurgents, what happens to them, and also the fact that Tom Barnes is injured and how he recovers. So there's, there's politics in there, but, um, yeah, I, I didn't want it to, I, I think people can bring bring politics to the book, I just didn't want to load too much politics on it, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: You uh, you said something, one of the objects in, in the book is a mirror, it's in the rehab center, and, and uh, Tom... Hmm. Assesses his changed body, and he he has the thought that he's unnatural at this point. Uh, uh, Unnatural—that's an interesting word—that that that his new body was created by violence and then saved by soldiers and medics. Uh, That word, unnatural. Why why did you choose that?
1: I suppose um, because um, from—I suppose what I was trying to get across in that um, in that chapter was the feeling that. my my own image my own sort of image in my head of myself didn't change when i was blown up um and when i see myself and still now when i'm walking along on my prosthetics when i see myself in a in a sort of glass wall in a big building or whatever i do get a moment of of um sort of shock in a way because what i look like is so different from how i feel i look like and when I first saw myself in a mirror, that was a very shocking thing. And it, it, that, those feelings were unnatural because you're not born like that. Or, you know, I wasn't born like that. I didn't, I wasn't born with no legs. And I, it, it was something, such an event, which even a year before I was injured, I would have almost certainly died. And it was only because of the advances in medicine and the, the u s helicopter that picked me up happened to be in place, which hadn 't been the case the year before, and so i wouldn't i wouldn't have been alive and so I suppose that 's the unnatural thing that i was I was getting at in in that chapter
0: you've said that you you like being in London because uh you you 're just part of the you know the big the big show people i guess in some instances stare at you they stare at your prosthetics. Mm. And that's, I guess, a yeah, comfortable yeah, situation yeah. for you and then for the people.
1: Yes, I mean, I, I think um, I, I, I describe myself as just another freak in London. Um, <laughs> you know, London's a city of 12 million people. And what I've found is that when I go to, out to the countryside and I go to a village, people are much friendlier. Um, so, they, um, so they come and talk to me a lot more, um, which, is, which is really nice. But in a way... Um, I, I like to I like to be anonymous, um, uh, which seems odd having written a book. But I like to go about my daily life without mm. having too many interruptions, and that's why London is a great place for that.
0: And at a certain point, you decided to to wear shorts more, short pants, short trousers, uh, so that people could see your prosthetics. Uh, why, why did you decide to do that?
1: Well, from a from a very practical point of view, I take because they're quite uncomfortable. I take my my prosthetics off quite a lot if I'm, I mean, I've got one of them off now and it's just because when when they're on, they're quite uncomfortable. So that's one one reason. The other is about communication. If I'm on the underground in in London or I'm in a bar or something and I'm holding some drinks, um, it it allows people to see that I need some space and, and some time. Um, in London, if, if if I was wearing trousers, I probably would have been run over by now. Um, so it, it's about communication, and I suppose about a little tiny bit of it is, is two fingers to the Taliban. Uh,
0: two fingers to the uh, Taliban? What, uh, why so? How so?
1: Well, sort of. You know, I'm I've been damaged by war, and I, I've overcome it, and I'm still going. And 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 you know, I, this is this is the, this is the new me. And why should I have to wear trousers that? Don't have any purpose. Why should I hide it? Hmm.
0: And including with, uh, there's a photo of you. I saw this in the Daily Telegraph.
1: Uh, um,
0: you're with Prince Charles. You're in a suit, but the trousers are, are short. So even in uh, more formal situations, you, you do this.
1: Yes, I don't. I don't have any trousers anymore. No, okay. yep, they've all gone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is so. There's some occasions where I think maybe I should own some trousers. So when I meet Prince Charles. But um, but no, I don't own any. So it's it's uh, it's it's always shorts.
0: Mm. What's what's the emotion that you felt then and feel now? Did you feel anger? This happened to you. What did you feel?
1: It, 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 well, I mean, it's it's one of the really strange things that people sometimes find hard to believe is that I didn't really feel angry about it. I suppose because I knew I would. Because you know when you're a soldier that these risks happen. That you're always there's always a chance that you're going to be injured. That um, when it did happen, I, I was never angry about it. And in the book, I, there's scenes that sort of where Tom Barnes says similar things. Um, and it it was I, it's hard to describe why I wasn't angry. But you know, my life, I was I was I feel lucky. You know, I feel lucky with the rehab I've had and the fact that I'm still alive. You know, that's that's the overwhelming. Um, feeling that's not to say some mornings when i wake up and i see my legs propped in the corner and i think god i'm gonna have to put those on today um and it's hard work and it's difficult but it's not you know that's not that's very rare now
0: Mm. you uh i think you have you have a daughter do you
1: yes i've got a daughter
0: Uh, how old
1: uh seven months
0: oh seven okay so still still very young i was going to ask uh, how how she reacts to to daddy you know being and at a certain point she'll notice, I guess, that Daddy has different kind of legs than other other daddies.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know yet, but a friend of mine who's also a double amputee um, has a daughter and has sort of grown up with him being a double amputee. And apparently they were at the park the other day, and she came up and said said to one of her friends, "Why doesn't your Why aren't your dad's legs removable?" <laughs> um, so,
0: <laughs> and, and her eyes an advantage. You remove her yes it?
1: exactly yeah.
0: yeah yeah um this this is extraordinary to me you did research uh so you weren't you know you weren't conscious for the amputation of one of your legs one of your legs was blown up immediately right by the by the uh, explosive device then it was amputated later so you, you there are youtube clips apparently you can you can watch amputations
1: Yeah. so, there, so in the National of the soldier one of the objects is the bone saw and it tells the story of the operation in which Tom Barton loses his second leg, which is something that happened to me. I, I had an infection, and, and they had to cut my my leg off um, about ten days after I returned to the UK. And um, when I was writing this chapter, I uh, I needed some ways of, of sort of finding out how it was done to sort of, well, make it into fiction, I suppose. And so I read some medical journals, and then, yeah, if you go on YouTube, uh, you can find some some interesting clips uh, if you want to sort of visualize it but I don't recommend it
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't think I will but maybe some of our listeners will no. want um, apparently there's black humor in the uh, I guess you could have predicted this but humor is a way to get through uh, black humor in the medical wards. Um, tell me a little, a little bit about that
1: so yeah I, I mean I, I, what was interesting for me and also I, I try and reflect in the anatomy of a soldier is the fact that the the sort of humor of the soldiers that you get when you're on operations is almost sort of converted into the hospital and has a whole new set of references, if that makes sense. So, um, people comparing injuries and whether they'd swap, uh, having no legs for having no arm and, and sort of racing each other around the, uh, around the wards in their wheelchairs and, um, so things, things like that. And, and, and so the humor still, the sort of camaraderie and the humor still was in the wards, I found, and, and I tried to get that out in the book.
0: Let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, uh, I'll, I'll have you uh, maybe have you select another passage. love to hear another passage from the book. I also want to ask about this quote. Um, as you were thinking about writing the book, um you said, am I falling straight into that trap of being defined by my injuries, being defined by being a professional injured person? And you used to go on to say you really didn't want to, to do that. I want to talk more about that as well. When we come back, more following the break.
2: Utah Public Radio is part of something that has never happened before. UPR is one of six NPR member stations chosen by StoryCorps for a new project they've been working on. StoryCorps has been curating conversations between loved ones for years. Now they are attempting to put strangers together, folks who are on the opposite side of the political aisle, to have a conversation. The project is called One Small Step. We will be traveling around the state of Utah collecting these conversations with the hope of having people realize that we have much more in common than we think we do. We are looking for people who are willing to participate, people who are interested in talking with a stranger who at first may seem like they have nothing in common. Is this something you'd be interested in? We hope you consider participating. Anybody is welcome. Just go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link. That will take you to a page with information, examples of these kind of conversations, and most importantly, a questionnaire all hopeful participants will need to fill out. Again, go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. time Tom Williams. We're talking with Harry Parker. who's out with a very interesting uh, debut novel, Anatomy of a Soldier. Uh, after losing uh, both his legs in Afghanistan in 2009 with the British Army, uh, Harry Parker spent years mulling over ideas for a novel, trying to find the best way to truly capture his experiences of war. When he finally began writing, he produced a novel unlike any other. Uh, uh, in Anatomy of a Soldier, he employs 45 different inanimate narrators to tell his uh, story. He said uh, he wants the reader to... Uh, Feel like what it's like being blown up. Feel disoriented. Uh, certainly uh, is the case as you as you read the book. Very powerful uh, book. Uh, Anatomy of Soldier is the title of the book. Harry Parker joins us uh, from London. I want to uh, have you talk a little bit about this, Harry Parker. Um, this idea of you didn't want to be defined by your injuries. You didn't want to be defined by being a professional injured person. I guess that's a trap you could have fallen into.
1: Yes, yeah, so I was just very conscious. Um, when I was going through my rehabilitation, that there were so many offers of help, and um, and that was such an amazing thing. But I but I got the feeling that um, there were some soldiers who were holding on very tight to the the sort of um, support network, and I think it's improved hugely. But um, now soldiers are sort of being re-educated and reskilled, um, and into into new things so they can have fulfilling lives and i just didn't want i didn't want my injuries to define who i was i wanted to find new ways of sort of just being me if that makes sense so Mm -hmm. so um i when i started writing i wanted to write about anything but um being 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 an amputee and war but i i came back to it and and i had it all inside me so so this is the way it came out in this book
0: Mm yeah i wonder if you could read us another passage from uh Uh, from the from the book
1: sure you were in the front driving and humming along with the radio then you stopped the car and opened the boot you sat on the tailgate next to me and drank from a bottle of water in the park people were walking their dogs through the shafts of light and down to the pond that suspended a morning fog pulling down the silicon sleeves and removing your legs you noticed the ring on your finger and you smiled as you thought of her then you reached for me and my pair and pulled us on, tightening the Velcro straps before dropping the boot lid shut and locking the car. You shuffled from side to side on me, trying to keep balanced, on my spongy carbon fibre blade, and you stretched your arms up across your chest. I only touched the ground at one point. I curve up in a sweep to a running knee that attaches to the socket your stump was in. You started bouncing up and down as you warmed up your muscles and remembered the feel of me. I flexed below, below you as you moved from one of us to the other, and we sprang back and you felt our energy and lightness. Then you flicked me out in front of you and tottered across the park and onto the road beneath, beneath the avenue of trees that circled the park. You walked us up onto the smooth tarmac and started to run, pushing down through us, gaining height, and then you leant forward to turn the height into forward motion, and I compressed under you and you sprang on, clicking with each step whipping over the tarmac, tarmac and down, bouncing on. We were running, and, and I felt light underneath you, and I pounded into the hard surface. Your hands were open and pumping next to you as you concentrated on balancing. I flashed underneath you as you walked, as you passed the walkers and the bicycles and ran on through the park, free of the weight of your other legs. Each impact hurt your stumps, but you were used to it and worked your limbs back and forward through it, You could feel the wind around you and breathe deeply as your heart pumped in your chest and down through your stumps. And I compressed and sprang on below you, and you puffed in and out above, and we overtook another runner. We did this twice a week. We were part of the park now. No one cared anymore or stopped to tell you how amazing I was or ask how it felt. It felt normal and light and fast and free, and we were running.
0: That's it, Tom. Yeah, that's that, yeah, beautiful. Uh, that is, uh, of course, the objects here, are the uh, The running prosthetics, right? That, yes, that Tom yeah, Tom Barnes uses, that swaps them out from the regular uh, prosthetics. H- have you had that experience of people, you know, and I wonder, <laughs> is it welcome? It sounds like in this passage, not 100% welcome. You're so amazing, you know, that, that sort of it,
1: thing. Yeah, well, sort of, yes. And it's also people pointing at these amazing high-tech bits of kit that cost thousands and thousands of pounds and saying, God, they're amazing. And um, sometimes you think, God, oh, well, I'm doing, it's still hard work. It's still hard, you know, it's still three times more energy to walk. And and I think, you know, I'm sure if there's any amputees out there listening, they'll know how hard it is to make it look easy, you know, to make it look like life's normal. Um, so there's, it's a bit of both, you know. It's always nice when someone comes up and says something nice. But at the same time, you know, there's that sort of double-edged thing going on. Mm.
0: You you say you've said uh, you don't regret what happened to you because it had become far too much a part of who you are.
1: Yes, and it's obviously a really silly thing to say because you can't change things. But um, I I never I never regret it. And um, and it, what was odd about that time of rehab is, in a strange sense, it was it was exciting for me because. I was learning a new skill and getting better, and, and although you 're quite high on drugs like morphine, um, which may cloud your judgment, it never felt like something that i I really regretted. Um, my overwhelming memory of that time was was sort of the excitement of overcoming and getting better, and I still feel that, and you know now i 've managed to write this book and, and i 've got a daughter and i 'm married you know i, I can 't regret it it's, i just can 't. Mm.
0: You, you've talked about, you talked the, about the Captain Barnes experience in the book, recovery. Uh, recovery is a very, very interesting process. You, you get to a point and you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm to this level, and then the next, but it's a continual process of recovery. One, if you experience something as devastating as, as you did, as Captain Barnes did.
1: Yes, and, and I, I, people sometimes ask me how long how long it took to be better. And what was always interesting is that, after six months of being injured um you think oh well i'm i'm better um and you'd be walking around and then a year later you suddenly feel like you were better and you'd look back at that yourself at the six month point and realize that you weren't even nearly better um so it it's sort of a progression and and, and that's just the physical side of things i think the way that the mind comes to term with terms with it it also takes time and and um it's, it's a sort of fluid thing, and I think it was only it was probably three years after I was injured that sort of physically I was as good as I was going to be, and, and it felt normal again. You know, I felt the, the fact that I had no legs wasn't a barrier to feeling like myself.
0: The, uh, there, there are passages, and uh, one of the takeaways from the uh, from the book is, is a message of, of hope, I think. Um. I get, Did you want you purposely set out to to do? You feel hope.
1: Yes. I mean, I. I think. Um. What I wanted to do with Anatomy of the Soldier is show the, the, the real hardship of conflict and and the sort of lack of hope in the stories of the insurgents and the people who are fighting and and in a sense the soldiers too, but set it against the story of, of Tom Barnes and although what's happened to him is 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 terrible, he 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 had, There's this sense of recovery and hope and getting back to norm- normality and all those people around him his family and the nurses and the doctor that's that's the hope although the book is told from the point of view of um, objects you know what I really want to get across to people is, is the humanity and all of that and that's where the hope is for me
0: just a couple of minutes left I want to talk a little bit about the juxtaposition of writing and, and drawing You've completed a year at the Royal Drawing School. Apparently, I'm reading uh, you experiment with points of view and focus. Uh, kind of similar to what you did in 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 the book. And are are they very similar endeavors? Or are there essential uh, differences in in the creative process?
1: I think um, for me, it feel they feel very similar to me um, in terms of how I'm thinking in my in my mind and. And it's always very visual when I write. You know, I open up a imaginative world, in a sense, and then all I do is try and describe that with words. I I suppose I'm not trying to be too clever with the words. They just have to describe what I'm imagining. Um, And in in that sense, I think um, it is quite similar. I think the reason, because I have painted and drawn um, drawing, sort of bringing my experiences of conflict out, but the power of... Storytelling and writing, in sort of however many dimensions there are, was was felt. It felt like that was the way of of sort of talking about my experiences, more so than um than, than painting, which felt a bit static at the time.
0: Uh, so, Anatomy of a Soldier just published. Uh, it might be too early to ask you this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, are you are you into another book project in the in the works?
1: Well, what's so what's so strange about talking about a national soldier is I finished writing it about a year year and a half ago. Oh yeah, that's
0: mean, right. Yeah. On,
1: uh, yeah. You know, I think that's the same with a lot of authors. You know, it feels like you've 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 put it to one side and it's finished, and then and then you you have to talk about it again, which is great fun, really. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm writing again. Yeah. Uh,
0: any hints on what it might be?
1: Well, there's no soldiers, and you'll probably be pleased to hear there's no inanimate objects (laughs) doing the narrating. But um, (laughs) I'm interested in in sort of cowardice, and it's set in a sort of more civilian context. But I don't, I don't like talking about it too much because I feel like the idea might sort of wither and die if I too ma- to tell too many people. And I don't want to tell the whole of Utah.
0: Yeah, yeah Okay, I understand. And I've heard that from other authors as well, that you, you don't want to talk too much sure. about the, the current project for that reason. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Harry Parker is author of a very interesting debut novel, Anatomy of a Soldier, which is uh, just out. Harry Parker has joined us from uh, London. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. It's been great.
2: You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Thanks to Wimmer's Sewing Vacuum and Bike Dealer, family-owned for 98 years and located on Main Street in Logan, for becoming the newest Pledge Drive sponsor at UPR. You can highlight your company and gain valuable exposure by sponsoring a day during our spring pledge drive, March 21st to the 28th. For more information about how to support UPR through a sponsored day or challenge incentive, contact Katie Swain at 435-797-3107 or katie.swain at usu.edu.